And at just about 11 o'clock, you are listening to KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. My name is Mike Hagan. This is Radio Orbit. I'll be back with you in just a few minutes. And the reason for that is I, I really wanted to um, explore the underlying structure of how uh, I understand um, uh, the nature of being human, the nature of this lack, this dissatisfaction that we have, um, and try to look at a uniquely radical theological perspective on that. So it hopefully makes sense. I think I was inspired to do this because I was talking to a good friend um, who is very into the Enneagram. And as we were talking, I was kind of articulating my kind of concerns. And um, then I thought, okay, this should be quite interesting because there's lots of people here I know, lots of good friends who are interested in the
this gap between the two and then the cross fits in the middle, right? You know, closing the gap. Yeah. All right. Welcome to the program, everyone. It's Mike and you are listening to Radio Orbit. Good evening. Good morning. Good day. Whoever you are, wherever and whenever you might be listening, welcome to the program. It is Radio Orbit. We uh, do this every Monday night. Looking at the cutting edges in science and technology and nature and art, music, medicine this year a lot. Sometimes strange and unusual. Always interesting, though, and usually pretty cool. You're listening to it Monday, August 10th, 2019. I hope things are going well for you and you're enjoying the evening. It's a stormy Monday night here in mid-Missouri. I do not think that I've seen it rain so hard in quite some time. Out at my place, we had nearly two inches of rain in about half an hour. And that's a whole lot of water, people. Anyhow, I hope you're staying dry and comfy and ready to snuggle up and listen to another Radio Orbit program. You might take a look outside. Maybe it's clearing up a little bit. Take a look at the skies. Got a little bit of a moon up there. And we've got the Perseid meteor shower peaking sometime in the next couple of days but uh, definitely available to your gaze if uh, if you take a look anyway uh, you can adjust the attitude one way or the other get ready for the program i do it every night if i can it's good medicine all right okay regardless uh good to be with you on this summer night and yeah, let's take care of a few thank yous and uh, get on to the show all right all right uh before all the fun let's say thank you to the excellent people that keep this radio station humming both on the air and off, 24-7, 365, virus or no virus, they just kick ass. KOPN, staff and crew, keeping the station jamming. And uh, really a remarkable group of humans up here. On Mondays, uh, Woody gets it rolling with traditional and classic country, along with Ameripolitan music from 3 to 6 p.m., more country than ever, with the Real Deal Country Show. Tech Radio guys taking over at 6 o'clock talking about the wild and wacky world of high technology moving so quickly. Kelvin Jammin, as usual, on Jazz Plus Blues equals Rabbit Hole Navigation Part 2. And just concluding, New Wave Radio Theater, Arcadia. We got the whole program in this time. And, uh, yeah, good music, good talk, good news. 89.5 on the dial. And streaming all around this wacky world at www.kopn.org. It's your imagination station, KOPN Columbia. I'm on the web at MikeHagan.com. Check out the podcast. You can get all these programs magically appearing in your uh, playlist or on your player every time that they are put up there on the web. All right. Uh, big thanks to all of you, by the way, for listening and participating. Appreciate the feedback, email, Twitter, Instagram. Hi to Nick out there in Germany. We got to get your music on the air here one of these days, my friend. And uh, that's uh, that's my bad, but good to hear from you. And we'll be featuring music from Nick sometime before the end of the world here. <laughs> Everyone else, uh, hello to you as well. Cheers. Keep it up. I like to hear from people, and it's always. Uh, interesting and, and, and good to hear what you got to say. Always feel free to message me, whether it's a potential guest or a topic that you want to hear maybe or music that you'd like to hear played. Maybe you are a musician. Maybe you're an artist, poet, and you've got something you want to share. Love to do that, okay? All right. 
Last week, part one of my rabbit hole navigation show with Jonathan Zapp. And we had a great talk with John last week. So good, in fact, that we are going to do it again tonight. We did this purposely. As a matter of fact, there was enough to cover that there's quite a bit of topics that we have on the list that we didn't get to last time. So, yeah, once again, we're going to do part two of Rabbit Hole Navigation with Jonathan Zapp. All right. uh, If you missed that show, check out the podcast. Like I said, I didn't get the uh, archives in the regular website updated. I had a crazy week. I won't go into that. But at any rate, uh, the show is up there. And if you're clever, you can find it on the website. But the easy way is just get to go to the podcast and you don't even have to subscribe to the podcast. You can just listen to it right from there. And you can do that right from uh, from my front uh, homepage there at MikeHagan.com. <clears throat> All right. All right, uh, but the archives for uh, all of the previous shows with Jonathan, and we've done quite a few of them, are there, and a number of other things that I like to keep uh, track of, including music and uh, some news that we do on the Radio Orbit Forum. You can click over there and post questions and comments and stories and YouTubes and BitTubes and any kind of tube you want, and you go just uh, trip on over to MikeHagan.com and click on the on the button that says Radio Orbit Forum, and you can join about 325 other people and give me a whole bunch of trouble. Okay. Anyway, tonight, yeah, like I said, I'm excited to have John with us. Uh, He'll be with us for the rest of the evening. He's one of my favorite guests here on Orbit and always someone with interesting insight and foresight, regardless of the subject matter, it seems. Always cool and fun when we get to hear from John. So we're going to do that in a few minutes. If you want to get a leg up, check out Jonathan's website at zaporacle.com. You can also check out his YouTube channel at zaporacle. Both of those can be accessed from the front page of my website at mikehagan.com. So yeah, check out his website. It's really cool as well. And we'll be back with him in just a few minutes. Um, Yeah, for the tunes tonight, once again... Because just like John, I didn't get enough of them last week. Music tonight from Skin Shape. We started the show off with a tune called Life is One. In fact, the song that I ended the program with last week. So, all right. It's Mike and you're listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back with Jonathan Zapp in just a few minutes. Oh, 
listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. Yes, it's true. You are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. And I am Mike Hagan. Last week, we had the pleasure of spending the entire length of the program with Mr. Jonathan Zapp. We are going to continue along the path of the Luminous this evening once again with Jonathan Zapp. He's an author, wonderful video producer, and uh, one of my favorite guests. And here he is once again, and I'm glad he's with me. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Mike. Hi. Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. How's it going tonight, man? Excellent. All right. So for the folks who maybe were with us last week and maybe for those who weren't, I'd like to do a quick review of some of the things we talked about last week. Not much, but just a a few things. I've got a quick little list here. And if you can kind of say a couple words maybe about those things, just to kind of bring people up to speed. And then we will just kind of continue down the rabbit hole. All right? Okay. You just tell me the list. I'll... I'll, uh... I'll try and summarize it. All right. Uh, first thing, we talked about rabbit holes in general, that we are all rabbit hole navigators, myself, you, and everybody else out there. Uh, we talked about individual lives as, uh, as rabbit hole adventures and relationships with other people uh, as, as rabbit hole adventures. And, and in, the, in, the, uh, in the sense of rabbit hole, uh, like we think about in Alice in Wonderland, uh, a strange, uh, remarkable experience. We talked about liminality, the edges of things. Uh, we talked about phenomenology, uh, and we talked about true skepticism. So those are the four things I'd like you to just kind of say a couple things about. Okay. I mean, so the basic idea is that um, <clears throat> um, a rabbit hole navigator is another way of saying a human being because we are navigating between dimensions. The most familiar example is waking and dreaming. Uh, when we're dreaming, um, we're in a very different matrix, an idioplastic matrix, a thought-responsive matrix, um, where the rules of reality shift. Um, but the rules of reality also shift when we re- have a relationship, because uh, other people live by, you know, have a different reality definitions than we do. And so um, things like liminality... Um, relate to being in a between and betwixt place, like, you know, hypnopompic and hypnagogic state when you're falling asleep or when you're waking up from sleep. Yes. Um, Breaking up from a relationship would be a a, a liminal state when you're between relationships, for example. Um, And then a way of of one of the skills of navigation, uh, that's sort of the territory that we're navigating, but some of the skills include true skepticism and phenomenology. Um, The true skeptic it was a school of Greek philosophy. We withhold from the conclusions so that we increase our powers of thinking and observation by not being overly formatory or reaching premature conclusions about things. And, um, <clears throat> and phenomenology means that we um, never assume that we've seen the noumena, the thing that's really behind the phenomenon. Um, that's really um, impossible for us to perceive. Um, including when we're looking at the physical world. Um, And so we have the humility to realize this is one of the reasons why we avoid conclusions is that we are never fully seeing anything. 
and therefore um, we relate to it on its own terms, um, but without reaching a definite conclusion about exactly what it is, um, unless it's something that's so mundane and it's just impractical not to do that. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, that's great. A great summary. And uh, uh, this whole adventure of life is a rabbit hole. And there are uh, tricks and tools uh, that can help you uh, find your way. And that's what we're talking about. We talked about it last week and we're going to continue tonight. So uh, speaking of tricks, that's the next thing on my list. And it's a big one and one that we can spend some time on. Uh, tricksters and reality testing. Uh, it's an archetype, certainly the trickster archetype, but I'd like you to expand on that and uh, let's talk about it as much as, uh, as we need to. Okay, well, the trickster is one of the most basic archetypes. We find it in all cultures. Um, sometimes it's related to an animal like a coyote or a crow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 tricksters are liminal figures. Um, they, they violate... Um, hierarchies, they, they disrespect authority, and, um, you know, the, there can be positive trickster um, cases and negative trickster cases. So we have a, um, a president right now who is, is a personification of some of the dark aspects of the trickster archetype. I have that on my list. I was going to ask okay. Trump as trickster, question mark? Yeah, no, he, he definitely is. Um, and he, you know, he violates all these expected norms and hierarchies and, um, you know, uses um, language. He sort of weaponizes language, you know, the, the idea that we, we have an expectation of people are supposed to be sort of truth-sayers and they're supposed to be speaking factually. And, um, you know, he, he's famously transactional <laughs> and he's a you know, real estate salesman, um, but known to be a highly unethical one. Famous, and so famously he just, transactional. You know, I love it, um, you know yeah. just hyperbolically lies about anything. I mean, he's been clocked at, you know, uh, some, what is it up to now, 30,000 lies or God something, according to the Washington Post. And so um, he's a huge trickster, but he also seems like trickster function of the cosmos um i wrote i've you know, written well, about 20 articles about trump but one of them is called you know uh why the trumpocalypse take the swallow the red pill the trumpocalypse indicates you live in a simulated matrix there are just so many improbable things about him being elected where where you know no, no one including him thought it was going to happen mm-hmm. and then his name means a trick winning card of course the family name was really drump Mm, yeah, but they they changed it to Trump. Um, um, but there were there's so many elements, including like a 19th century story about Baron Trump, um, and and you know a TV show um, from the, the 1950s where uh, there's a, a a character named Walter Trump who's a charlatan who yes, comes to this western yes, town and strange, tells them yeah. you got to pay me to build a wall or the world is going to end and this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Hey, hey, for a minute, Jonathan, please. Talk, you, you mentioned that uh, the trickster uh, character is, is an archetype. Could you give an example or two of uh, a character like that in mythology? I mean, pick any particular culture that you like, maybe. Oh, uh, well, um, <clears throat> the Joker and Batman, obviously. Huh. That's not um, what I was expecting, it, but yes. You know, yeah. um, Heath Ledger's um, um, Joker is a, is a pretty good one. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, they... they, they 
the trickster bugs money would be a more positive trickster. <laughs> but you, you'll find them, in, you know, everywhere if you look uh, for them. Uh-huh. Did you see the new uh, Joker with uh, Joaquin mm-hmm. uh, Phoenix? Uh, what, what did you think of it? I mean, it's a side note, but I, I, I thought it was a remarkable performance. Well, it was, but there was also sort of a trickster function going on that was mind-blowing um, when I was watching the movie because um, when he would go to visit his mom, they, they spliced two different neighborhoods together in New York. Mm. One was um, right near where I went to high school. Um, it was a subway stop near the Bronx High School of Science. And the other was the other neighborhood, and, and, and there was also some stuff from, like, my parents' neighborhood. And the other was the one other neighborhood that I would visit where I had old friends, which was the Inwood section of Manhattan. Huh. And uh, it was, you know, finally at one point, you know, they, they, they showed a street sign. They mostly avoided the street signs. And I got to realize, I'm like, how is this happening? Because they sort of spliced these two neighborhoods together as if they were contiguous when actually it's like a 45-minute walk. But I used to do that walk all the time. I would walk from my parents' house to this other neighborhood, um, the part of Manhattan that is closest to the Bronx, the Inwood section. Huh. So there was just a very weird trickster aspect at work in my relationship to watching the movie. And this is something that I've also written about um, in a, something I wrote. It's also YouTube called The Batman Shooting and Crossover Effects, where hmm. movies are huge portals for synchronicity and some kind of trickster function of the unconscious um, often seems to govern that where nobody planned that out it's not like people made the movie to freak me out but there was this weird juxtaposition of these two very specific obscure neighborhoods in new york city which is a pretty big place being placed together as if they were together when they're not hey would you call uh, or, or would you consider that like an example of it's a great term that you came up with years ago that I, I still love. It's called weird patterning. Right. I think you think of a, of a saying I have that wherever you cast your obsessive attention, there shall you find weird patterning. Mm. And so um, weird patterning, and you know, some of that would, would be under the rubric synchronicity, yes. um, is something that um, is ever-present, especially if you're an obsessive type of person like I am. Um, it, it's, it's something that um, people will um, misinterpret and interpret it as meaning what they want it to mean and therefore um, be tricked in, you know, have, have a be bad rabbit hole navigators mm. and end up in some kind of a total quagmire because they've underestimated the trickster aspect of the unconscious. That mm. because something is a synchronicity does not mean you're on the right track. Right. And does so it, it can be very deceptive. Does it mean and that you necessarily aren't, or could it also go the uh, other way? It, but it, it could. Yeah. It could. And so that, that's a very, one of the tricky things to, to navigate. Hmm. But it also, um, people will misinterpret it. They'll see weird patterning and assume that human egos, such as a conspiracy, um, a cabal of human egos uh, was responsible. So, for example, if you want to find out if you need to replace your car tires, they say take a penny. And if the tread doesn't cover Lincoln's head, um, that that means that uh, you know you, you need new tires. Right, right. And um, because the from the outside of the circumference of the penny to the top of Lincoln's head is exactly one sixteenth of an inch, and Lincoln was also our sixteenth president. Hmm. So now, um, if you're a conspiratist. <laughs> 
then that looks like something that, you know, a grand conspiracy, the Federal Reserve pointed out. But the, these things just line up. Things just happen that seem improbable. It doesn't mean that anybody planned them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Any human ego planned them, because there's a trickster aspect at work in the whole cosmos that creates weird patterning, but we can't sign it. Uh, assign any logical causal vector um, to explain it. Okay, so then back to back to Donald Trump. Then you mentioned that he could be considered sort of a darker aspect of the of the trickster archetype, um, but that also you've you've spent quite a bit of time thinking about it and writing about it, and that it is sort of a cosmic uh, trickster uh, type of situation. Could you tell? Uh, me and everyone else what you think the relevance of that is or have you have you considered it well it has many many areas of relevance i mean one thing that i've been very interested in and especially since 1978 when i started reading young and, and read about you know read his volume 10 of his collected works civilization and transition mm -hmm. where he's talking about coll collective psychosis and he's especially analyzing, you know, Nazi Germany. Um, and he was an analyst in uh, Nazi Germany. He even shook Hitler's hand at one point, described it as like, as like a psychic scarecrow. He was able to predict what was going to happen in Germany in broad outline, beginning in the Weimar Republic, when his patients were dreaming, uh, his educated German patients were dreaming of Wotan, a, Germanic, a Nordic or Germanic god of war and mayhem, hmm. called it Wotanism. It was such a striking phenomenon. And so um, I've been very interested in collective psychosis and also, uh, you know, coming from a, the Jewish tribe where I had lots of relatives who survived the Holocaust and things like that, which was the result, the, the body count of, a, you know, part of the body count of this giant almost planetary psychosis, I've always been very wary and worried about signs of collective psychosis. And right now, I see them on both the right and the left. And so um, mm -hmm. Trump mm -hmm. is sort of can be seen as um, a, a trickster, you know, because archetypes often blur with one another. So he has elements of the shadow, um, like the shadow of inferior masculinity. Um, of the, you know, and, and certain shadow aspects of the American psyche, and and is sort of a trickster-like like ability to kind of channel um, uh, some of those shadowy forces from the American unconscious, and turn himself into an unexpectedly you know winning of the electoral college candidate in 2016, mm -hmm. and um, uh, so he he. Uh, yeah, and, 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 he, so he, and he seems to ha also be helping to generate a great deal of collective psychosis, which we've seen in God. a lot of wacky conspiracy um, groups like, you know, QAnon. Oh, I actually God. saw, you know, a woman um, in, on Pearl Street in Boulder promoting QAnon, which is mm. an ex a conspiracy a set of conspiracy theories that's so goofy that you would think that any intelligent second grader would laugh at it. And I'm fascinated by the, yeah, by the, by the following, um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, just the, the, the penetration into culture. I mean, you see, uh, signs, Q or t-shirts and things like that. And to be honest, I know very little, uh, about that whole thing. In fact, I, I decided never to go down that particular rabbit hole. I've had people ask me to do a show on it. They say there are experts, you know what I mean? And perhaps there are. Um, but uh, 
I don't know. I, 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 the whole political thing to me is sort of an energy suck. And I, I don't want to do a political show. I don't mind talking about it a little bit with you. You and I have talked about it a little bit off the air that it's just like, it's not, it's, it's not uh, the, the best use of time, but, but I do see what you're saying on both sides, certainly on uh, the, uh, the Democrat and, uh, or, or the right and the left, let's put it that way, that there, there's, there seems to be just an absolute, uh, I won't use the word insanity, but man, people are losing it on, on, on both sides and, and really uh, scary, to be honest. I mean, uh, it's just... I, yeah, and, yeah. I, and I completely sympathize with your perspective of not wanting to touch it. It's such a high-voltage third rail, and it's actually more dangerous to touch the forbidden, politically incorrect territory of the left, because there really is a truth to the cancel culture thing, and, oh, and to like, you know, yeah. say one <laughs> remark that can yeah. be misinterpreted as a microaggression against whatever minority group, and you'll be, you know, excommunicated, and, you know, some, somebody called what they do social murder. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I see a lot of hipster types and counterculture people, you know, closer to the type of people that, you know, I would be friends with and meet in festivals and so forth. And I'm beginning to realize that a lot of them are like possessed church ladies in drag. God. You know, you can sort of see the crosses burning in their eyes, like, you know, dare to like, you know, say one thing that, that um, you know, uh, is against their is forbidden by their ideology right, right. And, and you know yeah, they yeah. will shut you down in a second yeah yeah i've and, had um i get I, frightening. I yeah i get i get scared you know just uh thinking about my own radio show not and not not really about things that i say but but i i, I don't have control of what other people say right uh, you, you know and and there there have been times when when i think oh god i wonder when someone's going to get, get a hold of that and try to crucify me for it you know but sure. anyway, I, I try not to sweat it. And I try to just because I gave up on politics many, many years ago. And and as a history sort of person, for me, the president, the position of president as a as, as a legitimately powerful figure uh, disappeared for me when Kennedy was killed. And for, mm. for, for me, every president since then has been uh, a a like a like a hood ornament almost and it's the same car and it's going in the same direction and he ain't driving it and he just is the front of it and people get to see that face and get to be you know get to pick on him or or love him or whatever but there are powerful forces behind the scenes and have been for quite some time some people would argue for millennia but at any rate uh and it, Donald Trump is not in charge of everything that fucking happens in America, <laughs> you know, I mean, or the world for that matter. I mean, there are lots of other powerful people, many of them whom, whose names we don't even probably know. But the idea that this is, you know, just a, uh, an ego trip between different political players out there that, that are all shown on CNN and Fox or wherever, that's talk about uh, amateur history history historiography you know or or conspiracy theory theories that that's what it is well i i don't quite agree with you i mean the, you know the idea of the president's hood ornament as just a um figurehead really um basically um uh, i i don't see that i mean and if you look at at how things have changed between obama and trump it seems like it's the the the, the perfect 
contrary illustration. Well, I, I, I mean, to see how, I, I, how consequential um, that election, those two elections yeah. were, and when, what, a, what a dramatic difference. The biggest difference that I see is being handled and everything. Well, the biggest difference I see is, is, is social cultural difference in the U.S. But as far as foreign policy, I don't see much difference at all. We're still uh, the military still is engaged. I mean, Obama didn't get us out of anywhere. We still we still fought and, and protected all of our assets around the world as much as we ever did. And, and Trump hasn't changed any of that. Um, I don't know. I guess I see maybe both well, sides. I mean, the, it, the Iranians blinked. But, um, you know, we, we almost had another Middle East war. Um, you know, remember that, that Obama, the Obama administration had created that oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. nuclear deal, whether yeah. it was good or bad. And right. It was, no, it was in place heard, and everything. Yeah, I agree with cases that. Either yeah. way. But, I mean, then, you know, Trump had, had you know, Soleimani assassinated, and um, it, it looked like, you know, we were right on the brink of a war with, you know, a country that's much more powerful than Iraq ever was. Mm. They, they backed off. Um, and, you know, that threat went away. But, I mean, you know, there could have been huge consequences there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, fair um, enough. Yeah. And, and also, like, what's going on with China. Now, not all of that, you know, I mean, China was getting away with a lot, and and Trump called them on it. But, I mean, it, but definitely there have been all kinds of moves. I mean, we'd have to, like, start going through the headlines and stuff. But there are all kinds of things that um, have shifted drastically based on who is president. Our standing in the world has gone way down. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Obama that, was yeah. revered as a leader, as like, you know, as a paragon of like the civilized, you know, his whole demeanor and everything is just, you know, a civilized, rational um, actor and, and this kind of thing. And I was just listening to a show that just happened to be interviewing a survivor of Hiroshima. And she was talking about, and, and so she's been an activist against nuclear war, and she mm, was just talking. I may, have, with, I may have heard it. Just sheer horror. She was on with, um, mm, with Christiana Amanpour's show oh, oh. Um, uh, about uh, last week, late last week maybe. And, um, <clears throat> you know, she, she was just speaking with, this is a woman who's like in her 80, 88 mm -hmm. or something, and mm -hmm. she's just speaking with just such authentic horror about like, you know, the president that you have in the United States. I mean, she realized how this was just destabilizing the whole world. Mm. So, um, so this is the the idea that there are these shadowy forces, and that who's president doesn't matter. I don't think really holds up. Um, okay, I think so, that there are, there are some things that stay the same. All right, so let me let, but, let me let me back up on that a little bit then, and, and okay. say that that I would still argue that there are powerful forces that are also in play that are not the president. I won't say that the president is in oh, it. It's not, not, not a factor. That's, that, that's all I'm saying. There, there, there are many other things at play. That's all. Okay, no, I agree with that. And even if, if you listen to some of the craziest conspiracy theories or David Icke or somebody, if you take a half metaphorical step back from what they're saying, there may be a certain element of truth. Hmm, yeah. there, there may be, a, you know, the, because, I mean, I believe in stranger things than some conspiracists do. There may be, you know... Um, non-physical non, uh, in the conventional sense, you know, parasitic forces that are mm. manipulating. I mean, this is sort of like what the Gnostics believe. Yeah, mind now, There could be very strange forces at work, and people then um, um, project those onto various human egos. Um, another, another way in which it can seem like there's a cabal of um, unified power, though everything in current events really shows us that there's no right. one set of puppet masters. There's yeah, competing spheres of power. Right, right. 
but one way in which groups will seem like, wow, are, there, are these elite power elites all shape-shifting reptilians, is that a lot of power elites now and in the past um, were psychopaths. And this is a very distinct subspecies. And so a lot of, um, because psychopathy um, has such a particular set of characteristics, psychopaths in one culture will behave in very characteristic ways like psychopaths in another culture. So it can seem as if they're all like maybe shape-shifting reptilians. Hmm. They are kind of more reptilian hmm. than mammalian in some ways in that they're much more driven by power and excitement and they have proto-emotions and not some of the warmer, fuzzier emotions right. that we would very want little, them to very have. Little, so very forth. little empathy, very little sympathy, that type of thing, yes. So it can be a biological kind hmm. of conspiracy um, without they're necessarily having to be part of the same organized cabal or something yeah yeah okay yeah i'm with you on that okay cool um let's uh continue we got, we got about five more minutes and we'll take a break but uh i want to keep talking about this trickster thing because it, it it it's probably happening all over the world in different cultures in thing in ways that we're not aware of in other words we're seeing the big ones here i guess where we live are there any examples in real time that you can think of that that where we can see this elsewhere uh, on on the planet right now. Certainly, we have uh, Mr. Trump to to thank for for one of the trickster images. Yeah, I mean, I mean, other cases, other countries where there are tricksters at work. <clears throat> um, well, how about Vladimir Putin? He was manipulating our election, and mm. he's using you know the all the the, the tricks of uh, the internet is like a trickster's paradise. There are so many ways in which you can skew perceptions. Oh, I mean, yeah. if you look at the things that, that um, the GRU and, you know, these different, um, <clears throat> you know, um, uh, Russian um, hacker groups do, where they create phony profiles and they will um, uh, uh, rev up, you know, both the, the anti-gun people and the gun people. Right. Because they just want to create mayhem, mayhem and, and chaos. So... Um, Putin is acting perfectly like a trickster, but in a very rational way from the point of view of his motivations, in that he just wants to create conflict and destroy us from within. It's almost like that moment in mm. Fellowship of the room, uh, Ring where they're all gathering together and the ring is like on this stone pedestal and they're about to organize the fellowship and they all start arguing right. about who's going to be the ring bearer. And you start hearing the whispers of, of Mordor in the background that's kind of like egging them on into the state of conflict and, you know, divide and conquer. So um, the, 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 Soviet, the the Russians, in a very organized and effective way, are using trickster strategies. They, they don't have the, the hmm. economic power, um, and they can't uh, risk, you know, a direct military confrontation. So they're using uh, trickster strategies hmm. of deception and, and so forth. And, and, you know, you find that sometimes in the animal kingdom, too. Yeah. Um, but but definitely the trickster function is is very dominant, and also the trickster function is what rules over the paranormal. And my friend George Hansen wrote a seminal book on that called "The Trickster and the Paranormal." I have a question here. Who is George Hansen? Um, well, um, George Hansen is I forget exactly his background. You know, he sometimes talks about himself as like a social scientist, and but he's got a very strong science background. But um, he really has, has had some really breakthrough ideas about how um, the trickster archetype relates to the paranormal. All right. Hey, um, let, let's, uh, let, let's hold that thought, 
and we'll give people something to think about for a few minutes and I can take a break and we'll come back and you can expand a little bit and tell us about uh, George Hansen, okay? Sure. All right, cool. Uh, my guest tonight is Jonathan Zapp. You can find him on the web at Zapp Oracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zapporacle.com. He also has a real cool YouTube page under the same name. And uh, yeah, we've... Uh, been talking with John for about a half an hour if you just joined the program. He was with us last week as well, so stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about, and we'll come back with him in a few minutes. All right, John, back in a few, okay? Okay. All right, it's Mike, and this is Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, and we're on the web at kopn.org, streaming every Monday night from 11 o'clock until 1.30 or 2, depending on uh, what's going on. We're going to play one here from our featured musicians of the evening. They are called Skin Shape. And this one is called Sun. Sun 
Alrighty, this program is supported in part by Pizza Tree Pizza. Pizza Tree offers pizza by the slice, specialty pies, and delivery. Pizza Tree is located at 909 Cherry Street and open 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day except Monday. And more information available at pizzatreepizza.com or on Facebook. And they have great pizza. And I appreciate them underwriting the program. This program is also supported in part by Sycamore Restaurant, serving new American fare made from scratch with local products. Sycamore is now open for curbside and takeout service Monday through Saturday. I think they have limiting, limited seating, too. 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. at the corner of 8th and Broadway in downtown Columbia. Uh, check that out and give them a call if you got a question about seating. All uh, right, let's get back to the program. It's Mike and Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. My guest is Jonathan Zapp. He was with us last week. He's with us again. We're talking about skills necessary for rabbit hole navigation. That's another way of saying how to get through life successfully and learn a few things and enjoy a few things and maybe teach a few things. I don't know, um, but it's very valuable to... Uh, uh, discuss and to learn some of the skills that uh, that John has been talking with us about for a couple of weeks now. So anyway, back to you, John. Hi. What's going on? Hey, I'm just enjoying myself and uh, and our conversation as usual. Okay. All right. Back definitely to definitely got me thinking about the trickster archetype. Yeah, I think you got, we're in a very trickster zone historically man, it, right now. It, it feels like it, and and I I want to talk a little bit more about it because I've got a couple other questions here in regard to it. But let's first. Uh, Please have you finish your thoughts about uh, Mr. George Hansen and who, who he was and who he was to you. Uh, well, he's still around. Um, oh, great. So, okay. Um, he, he, um, well, he, you know, so many I of our mentors are gone. I guess I always assume now, you know. Right. Right. Well, thank, thankfully, he's still, still with us. Yes. Um, well, his book, The Trickster and the Paranormal, everyone should read. Um, and he, he really um, puts the whole paranormal phenomenon and how different people and how different cultures react to it into a very um, brilliant and incisive perspective. And basically, what he points out, and this is something that, that people often estimate, underestimate about the paranormal, is the trickster aspect of it. It's just like in, with ufology, uh, you know, th there is no consistent theory mm. that you can have that explains the whole phenomenon. Right. There are so many bizarre parts of it that will not fit into any um, consistent theory. Yes. And um, other aspects of the, of the paranormal um, are famously non-reproducible on demand. Yeah. Um, they, they violate expected hierarchies so that somebody of low social status um, may turn out to have a great deal of paranormal ability, um, and, and somebody of high social status may not. So, for example, uh, the, the peasant monk Rasputin, um, you know, had tremendous paranormal charisma and things like that, and he was able to uh, manipulate and may have led to the you know downfall of the the Russian the Tsar and the Tsar's family and the Russian uh, you know royal family. Mm. Um, and so um, it it violates um, all kinds of expected norms. It's it's very anti-structural, and therefore the more complex, the more structured a social organization is, the more anti-paranormal it will be. So the social organization that's most friendly to the paranormal, that even institutionalizes it with shamans, is a hunter-gatherer tribe, mm, yes. which is a very loosely organized, you know, the most 
loosely structured, you know, social unit we can think of pretty much. Um, and that, that's a complete, you know, society. Right, right. And, but when we get to something, say, like the Catholic Church, um, it's extremely um, hierarchical and organized, you know, with a whole, you know, set oh of yeah. different, you know, from bishops to, to the, you know, the Pope and so forth. And, and, there, and even though it's based on a religion that is just chock full of the paranormal with Jonah and the whale and talking snakes and it's just one, you know, <laughs> rising from the dead and, you right. know, burning so bushes. And... But, but yet, because it's so, such a structured and complex society, it is profoundly anti-paranormal. So, for example, um, George Hansen in his book quotes a, 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 like a 1991 Catholic catechism that says, you know, use of uh, consulting spirits, you know, use of oracles, you know, uh, it, it lists all these different things. And it said, even if it were for the purpose of restoring human health, um, is profoundly anti-religious and uh, disrespectful of God and this kind of thing. Hmm. And, you know, really? I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Bible is full of all these well, things. And, and that's what they don't want any new such things. You and, and what about prayer? I mean, isn't that exactly what you're trying to invoke is some sort of supernatural event by contacting angels or God or whoever right. it is? I mean, it, it, can, it has to work through some sort of paranormal means, yeah. you know, um, and... I remember, but I had a similar reaction, even though it was far less rigid and, and less patriarchal, to the very liberal reform Judaism that I was brought up in, where I remember mm, in yeah. Sunday school, they said, the age of miracles is over. And that immediately struck me as like a profound and cosmic lie. Yeah. Like, does it, where does it say in the Bible that there's an expiration date on miracles? <laughs> right. Because I had already had paranormal experiences. You know, but what, what I immediately felt was, you know, this was the, these liberal, humanist, rationalist, you know, wonderful people, but they wanted to keep all that paranormal stuff safely contained in the past. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't have new miracles and new prophets and so forth. And, and, but that is anti-religion in a sense, because, the, you know, the Judaism had this history of these you know, prophets who were very iconoclastic and would like, you know, and some would say maybe Jesus was one of the prophets, you know, they'd be turning over the money lenders tables yes. and, and, you know, the, this kind of thing, they, they would be breaking the norms and, and denouncing the king and, you know, a Jewish king or whatever. And, and so, um, but now we want, but that, that's a trickster element right there. It's anti-hierarchical, it's disruptive, and um, it, it can just suddenly erupt. And so the, but the, uh, a very organized society doesn't want that because it's, it's, that's mutagenic. And this goes back to a basic biological idea that organisms are conservative. Both Freud and Jung noticed that the human psyche was conservative, but really I think all organisms are. They seek out that homeostasis, a dialed in equilibrium. Mm -hmm. And just like your immune system is going to attack anything that it thinks is a stranger or that's different, right, it's, right. you know, doesn't match up with its filters or whatever, it's going to have an immunological response. So, um, you know, a trickster is a mutagen. The paranormal is mutagenic, you know, mutants mm -hmm. and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so um, a patriarchal society will attack that. And that's why science will do it as well. And, and science will even do it in many ways similar to the way the Catholic Church does. Like, for example, when... Um, uh, Cambridge biologist Rupert Sheldrake came out with his book, A New Science of Life. I remember. The editor of the prestigious science journal Nature said that the book should be burned 
and he said that, that it should be burned for the same reasons that, like, that the, the um, bishops, you know, denounced Galileo. It was just, like, unbelievable. Like, why would a scientist, scientist compare himself to, like, the Catholic Church? But it was a very apt comparison, because they're both patriarchal outfits that, that don't want this anti-structural mutagen um, that's going to, um, you know, uh, inter, you know, be, be as like Terrence McKenna called it, you know, the cosmic giggle at the bachelor party of science, you know, mm-hmm. you know, where, where it, all these um, things that were expected to work a certain way and, and certain things are expected not to happen and, and so forth, all these sort of expected things, or for example, that paranormal is full of observer effects. Well, if observer effects get out of control, then it throws off the validity of all kinds of scientific results, even if you have double-blind methodology. Mm-hmm. And so um, science is profoundly anti-paranormal in an irrational way. And there was even somebody that uh, George Hansen quotes, a social scientist, I believe, who did a study that showed that the degree of prestige that a scientist had, how, you know, uh, what, what kind of how much, how much of a degree they had, and you know what what sort of appointment they had, and how prestigious that was. Uh-huh. That 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 correlated perfectly with how anti-paranormal they would be. Huh? You know, and e- even to the point where where they reject pretty much anything except the the currently accepted whatever the, whatever the current paradigm is. It's, they're very difficult on new theories that aren't that that perhaps aren't even. Uh, you know, paranormal or super, supernatural or anything like that. They they just don't like change to begin with in many cases. And, and right, we uh, can see this in other areas of science too, where there's a rigidification, and um, it, it starts to become you know. And then of course our mutual friend John Major Jenkins went, oh went through gosh. that with the academic Mayanist. Yes, yes. Know, probably ruined his health. Oh my god. Um, but you know, you they, they they have an irrational prejudice, so that. For example, the, there's a woman who is the president of the, I forget the name of it, but it's the American Society of Statisticians. And uh-huh. she said, really, you know, from a point of view of rigorous statistics, the evidence of the paranormal is as overwhelmingly conclusive as the evidence we have for almost anything. <laughs> um, but it's not accepted based on an irrational, unscientific prejudice. So we have scientism, um, you know, that, that that is a sort of like a religious belief system. Yes, absolutely. Um, like organized Catholicism. Yeah. Well, and, and this takes us back to true skepticism and how important that is. Because because what they're what you're talking about there is not true skepticism. It's it's the uh the false it's, skepticism. Right, it's debunkerism. It's a belief in a negative um and without doing your homework, without doing the research, you know, so so paranormal um evidence is dismissed as unscientific, but when Rupert Sheldrake did a meta-analysis of like all scientific studies versus paranormal studies, the, the percentage that involved human subjects, um, paranormal studies that use double-blind methodology, the, the gold standard to try and remove some subjective effects, was, was like 87% used at least double-blind methodology. But for all scientific experiments, regular mainstream ones that involve human subjects, it was maybe only 23%. Wow. So um, uh, it's, it's an irrational prejudice, but it has to do with that fear of the trickster element because uh, there's a desire in a complex society to have things 
under control, hmm. even though um, the trickster element has pretty much invaded physics. So that you know th- there was you know that those fa- that famous speech in the late 19th century where. Um, some head of a physics society in England or something said that, you know, the project of physics was, was basically over. It was, it was just a matter of adding additional decimal points. Yeah, yeah. And now yeah. physics is completely ruled, it has really just become the paranormal. You know, it's, it's everything, everything that's been discovered is so crazy sounding, you know, like Terence McKenna called it the limit test of credulity, the Big Bang hypothesis, the idea that the universe sprang into being in one moment for no reason from a point, you know, 10 orders of magnitude smaller than a gnat's toenail. And, you know, he called that the limit test of credulity and and so forth. And, and, you know, we have string theory that that can't even uh, conceive of any experiment to confirm or disconfirm it. So physics has, has sort of become an ever more bizarre, um, far more bizarre than almost any paranormal scenario we can think of. Well, yeah, and I, I think that you know the double slit experiment, and then and and then quantum everything, really threw such a, a wrench into into the models that now it's just been a, a crazy wild uh, race to come up with something that makes some sort of sense to somebody, but there's very little consensus really at this point you know it doesn't seem to be happening you know we, the, the unified field theory um it, it doesn't seem to it's, it's as if the universe cannot be fully rationalized hmm. and it's just like this um uh physicist i like him quite a lot as a popularizer of science michio kaku and he talks i call it kaku's angry inch he feels that we will eventually have a an equation one inch long that will explain everything. Well, I think he's very likely to be disappointed. And so, and so far, he is disappointed. He is. Um, I don't think that's going, I don't think the universe is quite that easily cut and dried and easy to rationalize. And that's sort of like where quantum mechanics seems to be taking us is, is into ever deeper into irreducible weirdness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Are, have you ever been in touch with uh, with George Hansen? Are you guys friendly or? Oh yeah, uh-huh. mm-hmm. yeah. He's been to my house a couple of times, and uh, um, I've spoken to him at length. Interesting. Does he have uh, any current uh, comments? I mean, are you familiar with what he's? I mean, does he have any comments on the current state of affairs in the world? We have talked about it, but I've agreed to keep those confidential. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Maybe I'll have to see if I can get him to come on the program. Yeah, I think you'd be a fantastic guest. Wow, cool. All right, um, before we continue, uh, I did have science as religion as one of my bullet points here, but I think we covered that pretty well. I would like to talk, though, about contradiction. Next to the trickster uh, uh, notes here, I have the word contradiction. And I'd like you to talk about contradiction and how that might play in uh, with with the trickster archetype, and certainly it's something that I that, that I'm seeing now in just modern life. Everywhere I go, including science, um, I feel that for every story that I read, I can find a contradictory story, and both of them seem at least reasonable. Uh, it, it's very hard to draw a conclusion, and it seems to me that there's contradiction everywhere right now. Could you maybe comment on that? Sure. Well, you, 
may have at some point read my philosophy, or it's also a, a YouTube if people want to listen to it, called Dynamic Paradoxicalism, the mm. anti-ism-ism. And so basically the idea of um, dynamic paradoxicalism is it relates to something that Niels Bohr, the father of quantum mechanics, once said, the opposite of a profound truth is another profound truth. And so um, mm-hmm. my idea, and this is a, one of my tools of rabbit hole navigation, dynamic paradoxicalism, is that um, <clears throat> is to recognize that um, all the important truths are part of, of a certain type of paradox. I think it's called a dialectism or something, where, where there's these sort of two different poles, and that you become a, a fool if, if you are an absolutist and you identify with only one of the poles mm. and, and don't recognize that the, the opposite pole is often true yes. um, or applies better in some circumstances. So for example of this is the um, New Age fundamentalism. You create your own reality, hmm. which seems to have begun with um, some things that Seth would, said to Jane Roberts and then other channeled entities started to pick this up and, and so forth. Um, and you, you will hear um, various New Age people pull this out of the hat like the most tired of magicians' rabbits, and without noticing that it completely fails even the most simple reality tests. Uh, you know, um, yeah, if you can create, I create reality, English, please do I'm, it. I'm pretty sure English existed before I was born, and yet it controls my sense of subject and object and gender and time and all that kind of stuff. So the opposite principle of you create your own reality is outside reality creates you. That would be the perspective of, you know, environmental determinism, like a book like, you know, Guns, Germs, and mm. Steel or something like that, mm-hmm. or, you know, that kind of thing. But, but, but then that point of view, of the completely determinist point of view, is also a foolish absolutism because sometimes you do create your own reality. You create your own reality is a very powerful reality formation vector. So if you're a dynamic paradoxicalist, you have a sliding or dynamic relationship between these contradictions or opposing, you know, uh, poles of the paradox. Mm. So for example, if I'm going to a party in Boulder where there's going to be 15 people, pre-pandemic of course, um, and I think that they're going to like me, um, or I think that they're not going to like me, I probably will create my own reality because that size group is of a small enough scale that, like, my opinion of myself is probably going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On the other hand, if I'm a Jew in Warsaw, Poland, and the Nazis are coming to town, well, you create your own reality would say, just focus on how well you'll be treated by the Nazis. <laughs> but in that situation, outside reality has got a lot more people, a lot more temporal momentum. These people are, have a rigid ideology um, and that are probably not going to um, accept me very well as a Jew. I should just get out of Dodge, or in this case, Warsaw, mm-hmm. you know, and, and realize that outside reality, um, just like you know, if I was a citizen of Pompeii in 700 AD or whatever when the volcano goes off, you know, I've, I've got to recognize that you know, a shift in my attitude is not going to save me from the shockwave of, you know, the volcanic eruption yes, and yes. that kind of thing. Right. So right. You, you have to know which one, you know, wh- which principle applies in which circumstance. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of circumstances in which I absolutely do create my own reality. And, and, and that's by, by far that, you know, when I'm having my morning writing sessions and so forth, when, when I'm, you know, driving on the freeway, 
um, I have to recognize that there are um, outside factors that are not necessarily in my control that I better take into account. Yeah. All right. I, I, I like it. And I think that I think that that is maybe the most important thing that we've touched on tonight. Dynamic paradoxicalism and the relationship to contradiction and how to manage that, because it is front and center right now, I feel like, John. Right, because we have so many people right now who are absolutist and, and they're counterfactual and they're just like, I'm on this, I'm on the blue team or I'm on the red team. And they, they are unable to entertain an opposite point of view. And for me, it's also like a profound cultural horror because I was sort of brought up in, you know, my, my grandfather was, grew up in a village in Latvia that had no electricity, but he was a Talmudic prodigy. You know, this is this book of Jewish, yes. Um, yes. you know, uh, where, where rabbis across the centuries debate each other. Yeah. And this is very big in the Jewish tradition is, you know, you can debate God, you know, God can take it, the, the rabbis would say. And so anything can be questioned. So I grew up with very scientifically minded intellectual parents and where normal conversation was aggressive Socratic dialogue, hmm. which really helped to sharpen my thinking. And then I was on the Bronx High School of Science debate team, the number one debate team in the country. And if you're on a, you know, with high school debate, you find out like five minutes before the debate whether you're arguing for or against the proposition, which teaches you to have a very versatile mind because yeah. you realize you can argue, you can use reason and rhetorical skills as a weapon just as well for or against something, mm -hmm. just as a, a lawyer will, will, will learn that, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people who are, live on social media don't realize that at all. Yes. They can only think one way, um, and they, if, they, if you can call what they do thinking at all. It's just like, I'm one of the woke people. Everything that I and my friends believe is right, and, and by definition, if you disagree with us, you should be deplatformed, <laughs> you're wrong, you're you know, you're a racist, you're this, that, or the other thing, and um, it, they have absolutely no ability to, they, 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 they or so you would think that liberal meant, used to mean being in favor of free speech, but no, they cannot bear to have anybody contradict them. So that's why I say, I, I see on the left a lot of, like, crazed church ladies in drag mm. you know they may have dreadlocks and you know um whatever kind of covered with tattoos or something but um and but they're as absolutely rigid as you know um a, you know um, a, a baptist minister's wife or something from 1910 or something like that <laughs> well and and one of the primary platforms is uh um acceptance and uh you know, tolerance. Except they're the most intolerant. You know, group. but it's like acceptance I mean, and they, tolerance, they, they, unless you're different than us, then you're not accepting right, exactly. I mean, you know, as, as possessed as, I mean, because when I would post these Trump articles, I have some, some Facebook friends, almost all of whom are former students of mine from the 80s that I taught, uh, or the early 90s that I taught in Long Island, New York, which is a big Trump enclave. And so these former students who are still friends of mine, now they're in their 40s or something, they were formerly high school students, will attack my, um, you know, they, they, they really believe in Trump and they'll attack my, but they, at least they do it with a certain sense of humor, right. maybe a very nasty sense of humor, but they're not, at, but, they, but 
we're also able to like kind of laugh at the same joke together mm-hmm. and like you know there's kind of a dissing culture so we can sort of right. like laugh at each other's insults right. and that kind of thing right. They're more and, open and that was always true it. in New York you know we would tell yeah. ethnic jokes and you know on each other and that right. kind of thing and, right. and nobody like got excommunicated and deplatformed yeah, yeah. but the people on the left oh my god I mean they, they are they, they can't tolerate you know a diff- divergent point of view at all you have to be, you know, to even think of something that's different than what they think means you have to be permanently put away. Yeah, yeah and this is what I don't understand about tolerance and acceptance. It's They're just, completely intolerant. Yeah, it's unreal. And, and this is the contradiction. And, 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 and the right is not much better. They're just more, they, they, they got their own problems, but, but they're, they're more open about who they don't like. They just, they just say it straight away. <laughs> you know, so. it's, it's a little bit more refreshingly, like, straight up and in your face. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to some extent, um, mm. and, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, a Jew from the Bronx. You know, I was used to this kind of like in your face, you know, but, we, we, but people would tell you exactly what they thought. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah. you would stand up to that. And, um, <clears throat> you know, the, my, my best friend when I was growing up, he and his brother, they were Ukrainians who lived next door. They were literally card-carrying members of an American Nazi party when I met them. Mm. Um, and, but, you know... Um, I, I would convince them of my point of view sometimes, or, you know, they would try and convince me of theirs and so right. forth. I mean, we, we were wow. able to tolerate Amazing. people that were completely different in their point of view without completely freaking out and having to, like, you know, burn them at the stake and this kind of thing. Right, right. Very interesting. All right. Well, John, I think that's a good place for us to take another break, okay? Sure. All right. Uh, we are speaking with Jonathan Zapp, and we have been speaking about rabbit hole navigation and tools and skills to, uh, to help you in such navigation. We've been doing it for most of the show tonight. We did it all last week, and we're going to continue for another hour or so here. Jonathan, um, before we go, I'm going to give a little teaser and ask you to think a little bit about your new book, Parallel Journeys, and if you'd like to talk a little bit about that at some point during the program. I know you've been working on it essentially your entire adult life, and... Mm-hmm. I'm just curious to get an update, and maybe it'll be released okay. sometime. Maybe it won't. But at any rate, uh, Jonathan Zapp on the line with us, and you can find him at uh, Zapp Oracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, ZappOracle.com. Wonderful YouTube site as well under the same name, Zapp Oracle. You can link up with John and his websites through mine at MikeHagan.com. Consider the podcast, and you can get all these programs come to you just like magic, all right? Okay, uh, Jonathan, back in a few minutes. Thank you for sticking around. Great. Okay, it's Mike, once again, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia. We're going to play one from Skin Shape here. This one is one of my favorites. John, we'll have about four and a half minutes, a good long break here. This one is called Kuru. We'll be back in a few minutes with Jonathan Zapp. <laughs>
All right, this is another one from uh, from Skin Shape. I like these guys. There's really one guy, as a matter of fact. I should. I'm sure he's helped out, but um, Skin Shape is the project of a British musician. His name is William Dory, and aside from the Skin Shape project, he was the bassist for Palace. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there was a band called Palace. Uh, European band 2014 to around 2018 or so and he toured playing guitar for the monophonics for a little bit and he also runs a reggae label called, uh, called Horus Records interestingly enough and they reissue rare releases from the 60s 70s and 80s Jamaican style reggae you can kind of hear that in that last uh, that last song that we just heard Anyway, cool stuff from uh, William Dory, a.k.a. Skin Shape. All right, it's Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. We'll hear more from those guys throughout the program. we got another hour and a half or so. Yeah, about an hour and ten minutes. Anyway, my guest is uh, Mr. Jonathan Zapp. Thrilled to have him with us again this week, and we're going to get right back to it. Hi, John. Hey. All right, on the web, once again, uh, zapporacle.com, and you can link there from my site okay uh john we mentioned the term a couple of times in the last segment but i want to spend a little bit more time on reality testing um Mm. let's talk about that what it means and how to actually kind of do it well i do i do have another um uh, youtube and essay called reality testing is politically incorrect Mm. and so it's a it's a vast subject but i mean you know some of it just involves a lot of the English teacher stuff that, you know, I taught in high school about checking the sources of your information. And, um, you know, uh, you hear some kind of crazy political rumor, you know, go on PolitiFact or Snopes or something like that and and, and check it out. Um, um, Consider the contrary position. You know, see if you can be a dynamic paradoxicalist and, and argue for the opposite position. Um, be wary of, of you know, uh, confirmation bias and reaching premature conclusions. Mm. I mean, the whole thing is, is really about these skills of, of reality testing. Something else I wrote, Carnival 2012, a psychological study of the 2012 phenomenon, yes. and the 22 pitfalls and blind spots of esoteric research. That's all about reality testing and how bad so many people who go into esoteric studies are at it because they get possessed by archetypes or they, you know, um, possessed by the contents of the collective unconscious and have them get, get on, go on a messiah trip um, where, where they become um, completely deluded. <clears throat> and immune to the so, rules of evidence and things like that. So. Yeah, all that kind of stuff, absolutely. Hmm. Well, what, what are uh, some skills to hold on to that? I mean, are, are there exercises that people can do to, I, I guess you just said, uh, some of the things that we can do, check your sources, double check them, uh, and uh, try to take the opposite position and see if you can, if you can. Uh... Well, here, here's a good one because we, we tend to have very low quality arguments um, with people. I mean, this is, you know, I've had this experience recently on, on Facebook where you have people that are just stubbornly self-righteous and incapable of critical thinking and, you know, that can attack you. But if you have a conflict between somewhat responsible parties, one way that you can mediate that is that before um, 
um, if, if you and I are having an argument, let's say, before I can like try and rebut your argument, I first have to restate your position and what you just said to your satisfaction to make sure that I really understood mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and can put it into other words. So, so if you can at least respect an opposing point of view enough to be able to intelligently and concisely restate it, that already um, sets you up for better reality testing than um, if you just, you're not even listening to the other person but are just ready to fire off your talking points based on your ideology and without any, without any attentiveness to whatever points the other person might have made. Well, I think, I think that we can show a good example that just happened about an hour ago. We had a little bit of a, of a, a disagreement about uh, the power position of the president. And mm-hmm. it didn't take more than five, ten minutes or so before we essentially came to an agreement or at least uh, some sort of conclusion where we understood one another. And right. I mean, I, 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 and you notice I'm not politically correct in that, like, I'm on somebody else's radio show. Um, you know, this is how I get in trouble with people. I, <laughs> I freely contradict people. You know, that's just the way I was brought up, and that's just the way I am. If, if I don't agree with you, right. I will debate you. And I gave reasons for my position and, you know, and, 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 and that kind of thing. But um, because you're an intellectual, too, and are not simply going to have like an emotional reaction and denounce me for having a contrary point of view, we were able to have a concise debate about it. Yeah, very interesting. All right, so important stuff, reality testing and uh, critical thinking, rules of evidence, self-inspection perhaps is on that list? Absolutely. I came up with my one-sentence version of the Jewish religion, um, and uh, it was... uh, to carry the torch of consciousness forward and engage rigorous self-examination for the purpose of advancing ethical conduct. Hmm. <laughs> Would you repeat that again? It's, it's to carry the torch of consciousness forward and engage in rigorous self-examination for the purpose of ethical conduct. Wow. I think that's a great model. I don't know how that. that came up, but I just decided, decided to like, you know, I don't, I'm not going to follow any of the traditions. This is what I think is the inner spirit of it. And, um, and I was in Israel, actually, um, hmm. uh, about three years ago, and they were selling these beautiful mezuzahs. You know, I don't know if you know what that is. But no, what is you put this little, Well, in Orthodox Jewish homes, this would be on every door, but in, in more common Jewish homes, it would be, you know, just on the front door. It's sort of like a decorative metal object, okay. maybe like between like three and four or five inches long or something, and that would have a Torah scroll in it. And the Torah scroll huh. is supposed to be hand done with hand calligraphy, you know, and it'd be like the Ten Commandments or something. I don't even know what exactly part of the Torah is in it. Uh-huh. But um, and, and, and an Orthodox Jew would 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 actually supposed to kiss the mezuzah as he passes from room to room in his house. Oh my gosh! Um, so anyway, I kind of like these objects, but um, and when I went to to buy one of them, um, and eventually I got enough to put them on the, the door door jams of every door frames of every room in my house. Um, but I was told at the store, oh, well, you know, the, the, the price was, you know, 10 shekels or whatever it is, you know, but, but it was triple the price to get the scroll because the scroll had to be done by hand. I'm mm. like, well, I don't need the scrolls. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't follow, you know, I don't, I don't follow either book of the Bible. So I, I, so I, 
as a chaos magician, I decided to modify this traditional object. And so in all those mezuzahs, I have my one-sentence version of the Jewish religion in it, which I just recited for you. I love it. I think it's fantastic. All right, let's talk about moral grounding. Okay. And uh, I guess... And you also asked me to think about parallel journeys on the break. Yes, yes. You're welcome to, to, to talk about that at any time, including now, if you'd like. Okay, well, I mean, it's sort of like asking me to think about it. It's like asking a seismologist to think about earthquakes. It's been like my obsession from, you know. It, this began in 1978 when I was 20 years old and I made my discoveries about the singularity archetype. And then when I finished my philosophy honors paper called Archetypes of a New Evolution, still on my website, um, <clears throat> um, I had this global intuition. And I'd sort of reached my peak as a thinking type probably at at 20 years old, and I had this massive global intuition that I would better understand the subject and be better able to communicate it to the world by writing a fantasy novel um, that explored some of it. Mm-hmm. And it, what was also going on was a massive like restructuring of my whole consciousness. It really felt like somehow I had really developed my thinking function in an earlier lifetime, and that this was a lifetime to be much more bi-hemispheric and to go down rabbit holes, and to not be limited by um, having to be a fully rational intellect, but also being able to be a fully rational intellect where appropriate. So um, um, the, the earliest versions that have characters, you know, that really start in the, similar, you know, the, the same characters as the present version, um, begin in the early 80s. And there's an official record of it. I went to... Um, the NYU creative, graduate creative writing program, and so I, one of those versions is called Spiral. It was a novella I wrote, signed by my advisor, the famous novelist Yale Doctorow. Ah, cool. No longer with us, but he was another Jew from the Bronx who went to Bronx Science, so he was quite a mentor to me. And um, and it's been it's played a very trickster-like role because it, it forever eludes my grasp. I've, I've written so many different versions of it. And each time it comes to some kind of stopping point where I realize, you know, I'll have a new recognition and have to start over. And there'll be long periods of time where, where it's simply not available or where it'll play a kind of trickster role. Like, for example, in 1996, I was trying to write Parallel Journeys. And in the middle of a writing session, I suddenly had this powerful intuition, um, like the muse just demanded that I make a collage, a giant collage with like images related to parallel journeys. And I kept trying to fight the voice off. I'm like, that is going to be, a, that's the most classic sidetrack. <laughs> the idea of making a collage was like insulting even to my sense of self-importance as a future writer. Right. You know, that's like, like if, if the muse were telling me to do fingerprint painting or something. And, but it was so insistent, eventually I had to like, you know, leave my house, go out in a snowstorm and like, you know, and then I started like cutting up pages, you know, irreplaceable photographs and pages from books and so forth. And it started like a two year, a multi-year period of doing a lot of collages and decoupage. Wow. Wow. And part of the purpose was I needed to become more bi-hemispheric. And in order for my fiction writing to grow, I had to be less of a thinking type, and this was like the one tactile Dang. art form and visual art yeah. form that I could do without any, you know, drawing ability or anything like that. And I did become very good at it, and so sometimes done it since then. Uh-huh. Um, and and so also like in December third of 2017, um, <clears throat> um, 
there was a huge break in my, I think maybe we talked about it last time or something, where I had to stop writing it, and um, and that's when I got sucked into the rabbit hole writing sessions and so forth. So it's been this um, battle between, it, it sort of has led me through all the different rabbit holes, and sometimes those rabbit holes are writing the book itself, which I really want to get done before I, I you know, drop dead of COVID or something like that. Um, I'm 62 years old. I've, I've been working on what I, I called it a sudden death copy, where I wanted a copy that, like, okay, no matter what happens, I'm going to have at least, whether it's got flaws or not, it's like at least got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and yeah, here it is, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm about 85% through, I mean, and I wrote a complete version in 2013 that was gigantic. This one is about 85% done. It's 200,000 words. Um, but wow. I'm, I'm determined to complete the, that, that last 15% um, in the next couple months or something. And uh, <clears throat> I'm working with my editor, Austin Iredale, and so forth. But it's all kinds of paranormal experiences. It's inseparable from my life and from, you know, all kinds of crossover paranormal experiences um, that connect me to it. And I think I probably, maybe even in that earlier show that we did at the end of last year, talked about, you know, an example of one of those. So I, I want to be careful not yeah. to, I don't have a complete memory of everything okay. we talked about, but I want to tell the same anecdote again. But, um, but so that's been definitely the, um, the longest rabbit hole, you could say, of my life that I've continuously worked on. You know, for me, and I'm not a writer, but I see it as, a, as an art form. And I think about painting and how, and I have, I have, I have many artist friends in, in lots of different uh, fields of art. You know, some are painters, some are sculptors, some are musicians, some are writers. But I think writing a book would be hard because it seems it's so easy to keep going. For me, it would seem like, God, you know, uh, it's so hard to, to put the pen down almost. Um, in, a, in a way... Uh, visual art painting is sort of similar uh, to, to me is the way it seems. It seems like you can always add another stroke or you could do a little something else. And I know a lot of artists that struggle with that. They, 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 they have a hard time putting their name on the bottom of it, you know, and literally saying, this is it. It's done. And now I don't have to, you know, I'm, it's done. I'm not going to touch that one again. I'm going to start something else or work on something else. Um, for me, the closest thing that I do to art is this radio show and it's time bound. So I know that it ends every, you know, it only goes for two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, whatever it is every week. And then it's over. So I can't help but sign the sign it at the end of it. I just sign off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, and, and I, I like the fact that, that it's, uh, you know, it's conclusive like that. Uh, is that, are you seeing that? I mean, I guess you must have yeah, some well, feeling of that. It's it's a classic dynamic paradox mm. that you know uh, between structure and anti-structure between um, the, the 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 eternal youth the pure eternus archetype that wants unlimited horizons and wants to be able to like you know don't grow up grow forever and so um, you know parallel journeys is like my child and I want I, I don't want to like. You know, the, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want it to be finished, and then it's sort of sent out into the world, and like it's gone off to college, and like I can't change anything, and you know, mm -hmm. and, and that kind of thing. You know, if you're like some empty nest syndrome or something when it's done. Yeah. Um, and and but on the other hand, um, uh, a creative person 
you can be much more creative if you are disciplined and if you follow certain structures. Like my day always begins, except in rare road trips or something, but even most of those, I, have a, I, I travel around in a sprinter van, a camper, and, and it's set up in the back to be a writing lab. So I'm, almost every day begins awesome. with um, a writing session. And that allows me to be more creative um, because I have that structure. I don't have to be like, oh, I'll get around to it sometime. Every day I'm going to be doing some, some form of writing, and it's fun. Um, but at the same time, um, I could keep you know, the, the rabbit holes going indefinitely, and so I have to have an, a, 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 for it to be dynamic paradoxicalism, I have to include the other principle, and I have to also be a finisher. And I have managed to finish all kinds of other writings, and so this time I'm determined that I will finish, and that I will, I've even told my editor and stuff, you know, of a certain text conservation mode, you know, give me all the line editing, meticulous line editing you can, but I don't want to hear about, like, how I could, like, tell the story from a completely different point of view or something like that, because mm, I'll just, right, may right. Ne- just never get done. Right, and right. so it's sort of like whatever quirky flaws it might have, I'm determined to finish it. And then if I want to do another edition in the future or I want to write sequels, mm, yeah. I can, yeah. but, I, but I want to really get it done. And uh, I'm not going to be able to, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I want to live a, a, a long, healthy life, um, but I'm also very excited for the interdimensional portal of death. I don't want to live one minute more than I'm supposed to, but I definitely want to get this done first. All and right. then I'll be much more relaxed about, you know, mortality. Okay. Well, I really look forward to it. I've been waiting for it for a long time. And uh, I imagine that uh, when it finally comes out, it'll be worth the wait. So. And if there are any beta testers out there who are good readers who want to look at an advanced copy, I've also like made an, even an audio version of it. Um, they can send me an email, jonathanzapp at hotmail.com, and ask to be a beta tester. Well, I may send you that email. Okay. <laughs> and anybody else who'd like to as well, that's a great opportunity in my opinion. So, all right. Uh, let's give out your contact information real quick since we just said that. We know you're at, uh, on the web at zaporacle.com. Can people uh, send you a note right from there? Um, there might be a contact form on there, um, but my email is just my name at hotmail.com, so that's pretty easy to remember. All right. Jonathan Zapp at hotmail.com. Right. Very good. Okay, back to moral grounding, or let's uh, start mm. a little bit of a conversation about moral grounding. What's it mean? What's it mean, first of all, John? Well, it, it means that, uh, and, and Jung also pointed this out that if you're going to enter the unconscious, if you're going to enter rabbit holes without a moral stance, mm. um, you're probably going to get eaten alive. So it's just like people who um, don't, you know, are taking psych- powerful heroic doses of psychedelics, but they have no purpose in mind. It's not that you can completely control such a trip, but I mean, at least if you have an idea, I'm I'm doing this, I'm going to do it in a serious way because I want to expand my mind or something and I want to increase my consciousness. But a lot of people are just doing it as kind of a a thrill ride. And that's a recipe for disaster. And so um, what we're seeing, I was just talking to um, my friend Michelle yesterday, who's like a health guru. And, you know, she had some woman work for her who was, you know, some of her Burning Man friends. And, and, and this woman, um, some kind of famous VJ apparently, um, was working as her assistant. And, and she's like a health guru. She has like malpractice insurance. She has to like keep herself very carefully quarantined so that she's not 
spreading illness to any patients and this kind of thing. And they had an agreement that, you know, this, this helper was going to do that too, except she decided to do three big shows, like super spreader type shows, without telling anybody, um, including the person that she was living with, as well as my, my friend. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's criminally um, unethical. And, and so you, can, you, know, you have a lot of people who sort of think that they're because they're like hipsters and they're avant-garde and they're, you know, uh, go to Burning Man or something that like classic rules of ethics don't apply. apply. Yeah. They have some other way of talking their way out of it and like psychologizing it of like, well, I just felt really like my creativity was repressed and I had to like express myself. No, you just... You were just being completely unethical. Yeah. You were putting other people's lives at risk. You broke a contract. You broke a, a, a sacred agreement with somebody. That's just not cool. And so um, we, we, we have a lot of people, and, and including the, the woke generation, who, um, and these are some of the people that I've been, the, the, the psychosis on the left, who um, feel free to completely act like inquisitors and, like, burn up somebody's life based on rumors or based on, like, one comment that they misinterpret or something like that, um, these just violate free classic universal ethics. Hmm. And this is also something that, that um, you find on the left is a lot of people were raised, trained in college in moral relativism. Yeah. I would yeah. run into this when I oh would, you God. know, uh, was, worked for a nonprofit called the Women's Assistant Funds that were helping Islamic women who had been the victims of stove burnings and horrible, you know, mm. um, acts of violence. And they'd be like, well, that's just their culture. And wow. I'm like, I don't care if it's their culture. If you want to burn people, people's faces off, I don't care. I don't think they're comforted knowing they had a culturally authentic experience. <laughs> right. I don't care if it's your culture. I, yeah, that's wrong. I I judge that as, you know. Yeah. Another thing, yeah, those people I say, don't you. be judgmental, Absolutely. which of course is a judgment. Right. Um, but I feel free to be a judge. Uh, of course, you should be judgmental. You have to be. Every what, what is your life but a whole series of different judgments? Yeah. So you can't. The, the you only can't thing that's wrong is to make stupid judgments. Mm, yeah. But you've got to judge things, and you've got to judge them morally. Because, you know, I, I will allow myself to go on any weird rabbit hole, but not if it's going to be an ethical compromise. I'm not going to, like, you know, let the, I, I let the world and the imagination and my life blur where it's safe to do so. I wouldn't do so if I was on a, the jury of a murder trial or something. Um, you, you've, if you're not going to be ethical, you heard my one-sentence religion, then you shouldn't even leave the house let alone go into a rabbit hole. I agree with you. Absolutely. All right. I think that's short and sweet and it makes very good sense. All right. Next thing on my list. Actually, it wasn't on my list, but I wrote it down since you've mentioned it a couple of times. We've talked about chaos magic. Um, we really never talked about it, but we've mentioned it a few times. I'd like to, you to mention just a little bit about that. What, what, what is chaos magic? You call yourself a chaos magician sometimes. And maybe a little bit about randomness and the difference between the two. Okay. Well, <clears throat> so I was a chaos magician before I ever heard the term, and I've read almost nothing about it. But it's just sort of, it's pretty much what I was doing already. And it's basically just that <clears throat> um, instead of trying to do, and, and, and let's get a definition. Magic, according to Aleister Crowley, is the science and art of creating change in conformity to will. Hmm. For every intentional act is a magical act. So some people think that, you know, magic means, you know, 
Harry Potter or something. Yeah. Um, but it, it could mean things like you might read in Harry Potter, though I don't particularly care for those books. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but basically a chaos magician is doing magical rituals or various magical acts without regard to any tradition. Unlike, say, an Aleister Crowley, who is, you know, has a part of a certain magical order and is, you know, doing classic spells of invocation or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, and, and there, there are some very prominent fantasy writers who are chaos magicians, Grant Morrison and um, Alan Moore. Hmm. And um, so I, I, I feel a lot in common with um, their work and with them. Um, and they, they also have experienced their work, like Grant Morrison's The Invisibles, this huge graphic novel, um, as like a portal of synchronicities and crossover effects and so forth. That's what like Parallel Journeys mm-hmm. is for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so chaos magic, you just sort of free yourself up from this, from any kind of false authority, like the idea that because, oh, if this is from ancient Egypt or it's a Native American, you know, th- these people had brains no bigger than yours or mine. And wh- why do I need to defer to a tradition be- when it- when something that is spontaneously created in the moment seems like it would be more magical, would have more conscious intention than if I am merely repeating by rote something that I inherited from my religion or some magical tradition, right? Yes. And um, so I just do, and I've always have, just do different rituals or create talismans and things like that, create mythologies, and and remarkable things happen. Like one example that I use in the um, rabbit hole videos, um, I was attracted to a, a, a signet ring that I bought at an antique store in Boulder, and it had an inscription in it, Ulrich um, 6 slash 67, June 1967, Ulrich. Well, that was too specific for me to, to leave that alone. I had to mythologize that in order to make this ring into a talisman. So I created a character, Hans Ulrich, lived in 1667 and 1967. There are like two occurrences of him 300 years apart. He's a time traveler or something. And I don't even remember the whole mythology, but I, I built this thing up. Right. And then um, like two days after I did that, I get a unexpected email from my webmaster, Tanner Derry, usually doesn't send me emails unless it's directly about you know the website or something. And it is a link to a historian um, an article by an histor- a German historian named Hans Ulrich, the same exact name, who has a theory of history um, that there's 300 years missing from Western history because of a flaw in the Gregorian calendar. <laughs> so we have the same exact name, and notice there was, in my mythology, there was a 300-year gap yes, yes. between <laughs> 1667 and 1967, right, right. and here's a, somebody with... So, you know, that's an example of how... Um, I wasn't expecting this mythology to create a crossover effect. It was just spontaneous, imaginal chaos magic, but it produced, or I shouldn't even use the word produce, because then that implies causality, and you can think of it synchronistically or however you want to think about it. But there's some kind of a bleed-through there where then um, this thing that I did as a private ritual telling no one um, somehow um, syncs up with events happening, you know, through another agent, um, Tanner Derry, um, the webmaster. So um, I do these things all the time, and they're a profound influence in my life, and and they relate to parallel journeys and to other things. Very interesting. 
All right. Well, um, I think we should take a break. We're a little bit past my time here. So let's do that. Let's take a break. We'll play a short one and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about um, rabbit hole navigation. You know, I have a note here about alternative selves as rabbit holes. Mm. And, and, I, and I also want to talk about spiritual allies and entities. And I think those things kind of go together, perhaps. So let's come back and talk about spiritual allies and uh, alternative selves a little bit. We've, we've covered that in depth. We did a whole show on it, but I think it, it relates again. So we'll do that in a minute. Okay, John? Sure. All right, everybody. It's Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. Jonathan Zapp on the line with me this evening. You can find information about him on the web at Zapp Oracle, Z-A-P-O-R-A-C-L-E, zapporacle.com. Send him an email if you want to check out Parallel Journeys, the new old book that Jonathan has been working on for many, many moons. And I look forward to the day that it comes out. And if you'd like to check it out beforehand and become perhaps a beta reader and give some thoughts about it, uh, you can get a hold of John at Jonathan Zapp at hot, was it hotmail.com, John? Mm-hmm. Okay, Jonathan Zapp at hotmail.com. And I'll probably put a link up on my website for that as well. You can get to him from there right now anyhow. And uh, we'll come back with him in just a few minutes. All right, here's one from our featured musicians of the evening, Skin Shape. And this one is called Appropriately After Midnight. Back in a few minutes, it's Mike, Radio Orbit, KOPN Columbia.
Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. That's true. You are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. And Amber House is a full-service getaway in historic Roachport, where I live, as a matter of fact. Uh, Roachport, Missouri, featuring multi-course meals from locally sourced foods and four individually designed suites, each with a fireplace and a jetted tub. Owners Dawson and Sherry look forward to personalizing each customer's stay. Pictures and more can be found at the Amber House Facebook page or at amberhousebb.com. And along with listener support, this program is brought to you by the owners of Columbia Storage, long-term supporters of KOPN. Columbia Storage, centrally located on College Avenue, just north of Paris Road, in the storage business for more than 30 years. More information available on their website, columbiastoragemo.com, or at 573-443-1599. Okay, back to business here with our friend Jonathan Zapp, and we're going to get right back to it. Hi, Jonathan. Hey. All right, so let's talk about spiritual allies and or entities. I guess they can be... Uh, the same or similar ideas, and then um, alternate selves and how that plays into it. But all, all of course, in the context of our rabbit hole conversation. Okay. And how much time do we have? Because this is a <laughs> vast subject. Well, we got to get we got a half an hour. How about that? We got. I, 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 okay. I won't stop you for half an hour. Okay. All, all right. right. Well, then, then that is enough to do at least uh, some kind of a rant on that. All right. Good. Well. Um, <clears throat> So, I mean, I've just been taking about a week off from Parallel Journeys to go through my 5,000 pages of notes on interdimensional relationships, many of which are dialogues with with those interdimensional entities. Yes. Now, um, one of them um, is is does appear to be have continuity with a deceased friend of mine. Um, and um, however, I do appro- have to approach it from a phenomenological point of view, because even though there's a lot of evidence of a kind, um, uh, when you know somebody well, you have a kind of holographic memory of them, mm, yeah. and you can turn them into a subpersonality. Human beings yeah. are capable of generating subpersonalities. Um, we, we see this with multiple personality disorder, now called dissociative identity disorder or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> um, but any fiction writer also has the experience where, where characters start to take on a life of their own and will sometimes do things highly inconvenient to the plot or to your, uh, contrary to your expectations. And, and I am a fiction writer, and I've had that experience. <clears throat> so, um, so when it comes to this um, deceased friend of mine, um, it would be so easy for me to create him as a character with my imagination and with my holographic memory of him and all the, you know, artifacts I have, you know, writings and photographs and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> however, there is also, like, a tremendous amount of paranormal experiences um, related to this and, and in kind of impressive things, patternings, that, that seem long before he was deceased to have prefigured this post-death relationship. Um, and I'll give some of it, even though we probably talked about it in the last show, because part of the synchronicity is, is happening right now. Mm. I'm about to do a Gaia show um, on this. I had, I, it was December, 
I just went through the, the notes and I found this. It was December, like uh, like just after Christmas of 2019, mm-hmm. um, right around the time when we did a show together, when yeah. I realized, wow, you know, I, I've, I've been, um, it must have been like a week before that or something, because right around the time when you contacted me to be yeah, on the show. Yeah, we did the show right at the end of the year, like the 30th, I think right. it was. Um, so just before that, I suddenly realized, you know, this, this was what most of my two years of rabbit hole writing sessions were about, this interdimensional communication stuff. And I realized, you know, now I finally figured out enough about it that I could really talk about this. But I do nothing to market myself. I don't do anything. I don't call anybody up and ask them to have me on or anything. I just don't have the energy for that. Like, it, you know, um, doing the actual work takes up all of my energy plus like living the rest of my life. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so within like a day of, of having that realization, then like you contacted me and then um, the Gaia, George Norrie's Beyond Belief Gaia show contacted me mm-hmm. and then independent of them, his radio show Coast to Coast, Lisa Lyons contacted me. So suddenly I, all these like venues were, were opening up for me to speak about this subject that I had done nothing to solicit them. And then when they came time to select a date for the Gaia show, the date that they selected was the birthday of my friend. Huh. Um, now, it turns out that it's not, the Saturday is not his birthday because we, we, I asked to postpone it because we did a pretty strict quarantine. So they were kind enough to um, agree to postpone it, and now it's going to finally happen this Saturday. Great. But um, just to give you an idea on how it all like relates to parallel journeys and to all the, the all the weirdnesses, though I probably told some aspect of this anecdote in the previous show, but not everybody will have listened to that. But um, in 2006, I just wrote this little rant, you know, like a, a two-hour writing session called March 4th, a Mutant Manifesto. It was a pun on the date March 4th. Yes, sure. Because, you know, Uh F-O-R-T-H, exclamation mark, you know, Uh instead of March 4th, F-O-U-R-T-H. And and, And 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 the anniversary of of La Churera, certainly, yeah. Is it? Okay. And anyway, in it, I just say stuff like, you know, March 4th, you know, mutants, you know, break free from your wage slave bondage and, you know, shackles of your wage slave bondage and March 4th. It's kind of like this invocation, like, you know, for, for mutants to break free from mundanity and, you know, assert themselves. Yes, I like it. Anyway, so on March 4th, the date of 2008, a uh, young person um, who I knew did not know me, I did not know them, they knew nothing of my writings, um, had what they described as a nervous breakdown, quit their job at a tax office, and marched forth. Hmm. Um, he just got on a, the, the, the next Greyhound bus going anywhere and ended up in Boulder, Colorado, and knocked on the door of the Boulder International Hostel where I was working at the time at the front desk. Wow. And, um, and then within the first 30 minutes of talking to him, um, it turned out that he was haunted by basically um, a, a simplified version of the same story I was writing, Parallel Journeys. Wow. With the same central character. And the same idea, I don't want to give plot spoilers, <laughs> but it was just like he had, he had been... Uh, you know, obsessed by the same exact story. So it's sort of, um, and and he had a lot of like in his character and everything, a lot of connection, you know, a lot of connection to the story. And and it would also turn out that that he was like a genius poet. Um, and other people who know more about poetry than than I do, you know, have looked at his poems and were 
just completely shocked at like you know how profound and soulful um, they they were. Wow. Um, and are, and um, <clears throat> anyway, um, so uh, all kinds of you know things that, that there were all kinds of extremely telepathic moments, and we talked about this while we were both still alive. There'd be these incredible telepathic moments, um, and and including. Um, just before he took his own life, um, and I had no contact with him for eight months before that, hmm. um, I had abs- dreams that I, where he, he appeared in the lower astral and that left me absolutely distraught. Like yeah. One was like 10 days before um, his death, and one was like probably the night of. Oh, my gosh. And, um, and anyway, so the, this... These paranormal phenomenon related um, happen, you know, on an almost daily basis now, but they, I, I can't regard them as proving anything because when paranormal things happen, um, it's almost impossible if you're intellectually rigorous about it to say right. what paranormal thing happened. Right. Right. So, so for example, if he were to say to me, "Okay, pull out a quarter, and um, I want you to toss it twelve times, and just so you know that I'm real, and it's still me," I'm, I'm going to predict that it will details 12 times in a row and now let's say i perform that experiment and i toss the coin and i get tells 12 times in a row um did that prove that he still exists well no because mm-hmm. i could have telekinetically influenced the coins mm-hmm. maybe i you know had a um a moment of precognition there's in paranormal research the strongest evidence is for short-term clairvoyance and there's something in paranormal research called decision augmentation theory where you may precognitively know the exact moment to conduct a certain experiment to get the result that you want, mm-hmm, this kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so I do relate, it, relate to it phenomenologically, but I also relate to it from um, the moral grounding perspective. And I realized this you know, in the first few days of this post-death relationship that began very unexpectedly, um, <clears throat> that, um, well, two major possibilities. Um, one is I'm, I'm making up a sub-personality. I'm making a, you know, creating this out of my imagination. Um, and the other, that it has continuity, that, it, that this is another agent, you know, that has continuity, the, the soul or spirit of my deceased friend. So um, if, if it is him in that continuity sense, and I don't engage, that's clearly uh, seems unethical and would be failing in my role as a friend and a mentor. Agreed. Um, on the other hand, um, if it's not him, and I can't, can't clearly just, and I have to accept the ambiguity, I, I can't conclude, there's no test I can perform to conclusively eliminate mm. one of those versus the other. Um, and, um, you know, um, so... so but, but, if you, other, but, if you can, but if you can apply moral grounding, dynamic paradoxicalism, the types of things we're talking about, then it can be managed. It can be balanced. Right. I mean, and that, that's, that's basically where, where I'm at, um, is I have to um, allow the, accept the ambiguity, relate to it phenomenologically on its own terms, and, um, and, and go forward um, and, and, and be ethical about it. Um, you know, even if he is a subpersonality, subpersonality should still be treated well and ethically and like independent agents. Um, and I have a, a friend who is a philosophy professor and um, who did his Ph.D. dissertation on multiple personality disorder. Mm. Because, you know, and, and what are the ethics of that? Because there are these psychiatrists who would 
feel free to kill off certain of the altars uh, that were more disruptive. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, was that ethical? Yeah. Um, so uh, um, wh- whether the... That's the, scary the, stuff, Jonathan, the right, psychology yeah, and, and, and the mind and what, 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 they're, what they're capable of doing if they decide to be unethical, unreal. Right, and I definitely recommend seeing a movie called Jonathan, strangely enough, that has incredible, you know, 20 synchronicities related to myself and my friend, even with the same names and stuff. And it's about uh, two psyches that share one body. Um, So from an ethical point of view, if if it is a subpersonality, that's still an interesting phenomenon, and it's not clear... Um, that there'd be any harm in my pursuing that relationship right. because right. it's not making me dysfunctional as a person. I'm not um, losing my reality testing. I'm not getting confused about what's in my checking account and so forth. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not, right. I, I still have, it's not, it's not causing me to neglect my other relationships. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it also, the other relationships don't take the place of this mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and it's, it seems very symbiotic. Um, you know, for one thing, um, he's kind of a better writer than I am in some ways. So we're able to, to write kind of like a, with a four hemisphere brain. And, um, and so I think it's, it's definitely helping with parallel journeys. And I have emails from the actual historical person where he said, uh, like two or three emails where he said, I really want to work with you on parallel journeys because, you know, that maybe that will help me to write the story hmm. that's parallel to that that I wanted to write and this kind of thing. Wow. And um, so... <clears throat> Um, but I, for example, there was something that I, where I didn't do something that I promised I was going to do. And he just withdrew his presence for like three or four hours. This was a few months ago. And I felt a shocking drop in my energy level. And even when, even though during those three or four hours, a young high energy friend came over, it was no substitute Hmm. for the, the, the kind of like doubled attention of like two psyches, you know, aware of like, you know, the, the sensor, sensorium, because I gave him permission. Some people, this would be considered possession, but I gave him permission to like experience um, my entire life um, mm-hmm. through my senses anytime mm-hmm. he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And by the way, like, the, you know, the, the whole time, like another one of the weird synchronicities related to this is that like, Almost immediately after his death, and I posted something on Facebook, a woman who um, I never met was one of my 2,000 Facebook friends or something said, do we really have to get this book, Suicide in the Afterlife? Hmm. And um, somehow that title rang a bell, and I immediately ordered it. And in fact, I even arranged my flight so that, like, you know, I would get the book from Amazon before I, you know, flew to his hometown. And then um, it seemed like the book wasn't going to arrive um, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I've got to leave. I've got to like do these last minute errands. And like, I open the door, and like standing right in front of me is the UPS guy holding the the package. And he only had one package with him. Usually, it was I was in a big apartment building at the time, where mm-hmm. he had like a whole cart full of packages. But he was just like, didn't even have a chance to knock on the door. I just opened it, and there was the book. And then that book became like my guidebook um, that described so many of the things. It's written by John, a psychologist named John Klimo. Hmm. And um, in my, on my last day at um, his hometown, um, there were all these synch- sort of weird patterning related to the two-digit number 55, which seems very weak, because if you're looking for a two-digit number, it'll seem to be everywhere. But it was very prominent. I was 55 at the time. 
I was staying at, at a, a hostel where they changed the code. They changed the code to get in the two-digit code daily, and they changed the code to 55. Okay. Um, I took a light rail train, um, and it was train number 55. And then um, <clears throat> I was watching the movie Oblivion, um, and um, in the middle of the movie, I get a call from Lisa Lyons, the producer of Coast. That's a call I'll, I'll step out of a movie for because it's a chance to be in Coast to Coast. Yeah, and she's sure. calling up to say, hey, what are you doing this Sunday? Um, we just had a last-minute cancellation. I'm like, oh, well, on Sunday, I'm going to be flying to New York to visit with my mom. And she goes, well, we'll probably just keep calling around. You know, what if your flight's canceled or something? We don't like to book people the same day as the flight. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And... Um, <clears throat> But anyway, so then I'm in New York, which, which I went to like right after this, you know, going to the funeral in this my friend's hometown. Yeah. And now, and suddenly it occurs to me, like you know, um, oh, I wonder who they booked instead of me. <laughs> and, and then I realized, wait a minute, <laughs> Sunday, that was five five. That was May fifth. Five five. Well, they booked John Climo, the author of Suicide oh in the Afterlife. Yeah. He'd only been on once before. Huh. I'd been on many times before. Yeah. And and he came on to talk about. Suicide in the afterlife, among other subjects. I'll be damned. Um, so, so there, but what does all that weird patterning mean? It's very hard to say. Yes. But I mean, what what most people who are sympathetic to this kind of research say is that you know you're on to something. You know, um, it, and it's it's very entertaining and very engaging. You know, it's sort of like living in a fantasy novel. I mean, uh, it's indistinguishable from that, um, and and that's basically. The most I can say about it is I'm in some kind of an interesting rabbit hole where I'm learning stuff, but I want to be very, I still have to be very careful mm. not to come to too definite a conclusion, even though from a certain phenomenological and ethical point of view, he insists that I treat him as having historical continuity. And so, um, so as not to offend him, I do treat him that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. What about imaginal portals? We've talked a little bit uh, about bleeding over from these realms um, is um, how what is an imaginal portal is it, I mean is that is that the way that you, you you get into contact with these particular allies entities etc well I, I so I think that the imaginal is a real dimension um, and and you can even you know that th this should be um, self-evident really you know if i say for example imagine a pink elephant we talked about this mm -hmm. and people do then it's a factual actuality that they imagine that pink elephant at yeah. that particular moment yes um and but the imaginal seems to be um uh, a far more potent dimension than, than even you know something like that would suggest and so um you know you, you the imaginal can be used like that that's a place where we can I can communicate better with my friend. So, for example, we can create a um, an imaginal scenario. It doesn't have to be the room that in which I'm, I'm typing on the computer. We can go back and be like, okay, let's go back to the room that we hung out in, you know, in 2008. Yeah, yeah, I can. And, um, and go back to that exact scene where we had that conversation, but now we're going to have the conversation differently. And um, when early on in this post-death relationship, you know, I, I would ask myself, you know, am I, is this how much, am, is this a personality I'm creating and how much is it actually him? I went to random.org. I got 36 for my imagination and 64 for it being him. 
And what was interesting is that those two numbers add up to 100. Right. So as if every percentage point was accounted for. Right. 64 is also the, the number of hexagrams in the I Ching, so it seemed like a very totality mm. number. Mm -hmm. But later, I actually talked about that, you know, because it's so many times it felt like I was just projecting, you know, my, my version of him. And he said, well, of course you were. He called it my Technicolor Spotlight. Mm. He said, you know, a, 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 for a lot of those early days, I was in a very depressed and yin kind of place. You know, um, and um, low energy. And so when you would project onto me, it was like this technicolor spotlight that gave me a lot of energy. And then I could step into that spotlight and inhabit that role. But you couldn't get me to say something that, you know, because um, I always had that ventriloquism fear of like, you know, am I getting mm. him to say stuff like that? Yeah. And it's also because it's very confusing with, with a kind of a telepathic melding, because if it's convenient, he can use some of my word-making ability mm. to, you know, put it into more thinking-type terms and, and stuff like that. Um, but but he'll often say that. Um, and is there, so, hey, Jonathan, is is there a ritual or is it ceremonial or is there is there a, a a process or a procedure that you go through in order to get into that particular state where you're communicating, or is it almost instantaneous where you can just kind of be like, okay, um, you know, like he's well, right there almost. <clears throat> It, well, it can, it can happen at very unexpected times where I'm not doing anything and, and there's like, you know, uh, and, and, you know, he'll just pop up. And I've had this experience with the one other interdimensional ally who was not somebody I knew historically, as far as I know, mm -hmm. um, is it where they can just suddenly emerge very powerfully in certain circumstances. Travel is one of them. I mean, basically the ritual is me showing up at the computer and, 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 and having a written dialogue mm. is, is the main thing. But also my study is set up to look like a very surreal portal with like low lights and a lot of like surreal colored lights and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a conducive environment. But I mean, it just, you know, giving it attention is usually enough to, to establish contact. But for example, <clears throat> I had a, a long periods of time where I felt like he was gone or had moved on. And I was traveling in, I was in Paris with a friend of mine, and it was like the anniversary of his death or something, and I was going to light a candle. But I'm like, I don't even know why I'm bothering. I haven't, like, heard from him in months, you know, and so forth. It felt like he was gone. But then, like, that night, I had a dream in which I'm shown, like, a dorm room um, and like a, almost as if like a college dorm room and it's completely dominated by like, you know, a large bed and then a, an extremely large TV that takes up a whole wall. And after that dream, I'm like, hmm, you know, it almost seemed like a metaphor for maybe he's just silently watching. And then um, that day, my friend had to go to visit a relative that was temporarily in Paris. And I decided that would be the day I would go to the catacombs. Hmm. And nothing prepared me that I read prepared me for how intense the catacombs were. But I was just waiting online, you know, like looking through my phone or something. And suddenly, just as clear as a bell and like completely unexpectedly. And it, and it was also like when he would appear, it would be like spatially distinct. Like, okay, he's there, you know, off to the, in the right-hand corner of the room and this kind of thing. Even if I couldn't always clearly visualize him or there'd have to be a certain like cooperation to create the visualization but um he, you know he sort of broke through and i hadn't heard from him in such a long time and he's just like this is the closest you're ever going to get to seeing what it's like in the lower astral hmm. and he just said that was so such authority and his presence was so intense and very serious and then i go down this long spiral staircase and like nothing prepares you for how intense the catacombs are there's like six million skeletons 
in this vast underground labyrinth. And, and it was an extremely powerful experience. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, um, so, so there are situations, and I had this happen, and this relates to some of the creation of new scenes and parallel journeys, where um, I, I felt very intuitively drawn to go to Tucson, to the Gem and Mineral Show, even though it seemed like a very impractical and unnecessary thing to do. And, and pretty much as soon as I got off the bus, this was shortly before the death of my friend, um, the other interdimensional companion that I've been with me since age 10 or 11, um, immediately like came forward and um, immediately like whole chapters of Parallel Journey started playing out. And then I was going to go to um, Oracle, Arizona to see Biosphere 2 um, because the, the previous time I had been there, like in 1999, I just went there like you know, any other tourist because I heard about this thing. I had this intensely emotional reaction to it. I mean, mm. here's this weird sci-fi complex, and yeah, I'm like, yeah. but, and it felt like memories. And I assumed that like these memories that felt so emotional was like because of the poignant experiences of the biospherians who lived there. Perhaps, yeah. When I actually read, I read every book written about the biosphere by biospherians and even met one of them and, and um, saw a documentary recently about them. And I don't think that was it because there are people that would really have annoyed me if I knew them. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, but, I, but it was like I, I, I had this just powerful emotional feeling. It was very nonspecific, but as if I, you know, I had lived an alternate life in like some kind of biosphere or something. And then in 2013, um, I, I step out of my rented car and like between the parking lot and um, entering the biosphere, like an entire huge section of parallel journeys just played out you know, a whole scenario and, and so forth. It's Amazing. central to the story now and begins the, the, the whole, whole book now. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know where that came from, but it just appeared. And so, and, and, and with the presence of this other um, interdimensional ally that, that, um, that I experienced sometimes coming forward very distinctly, when I would be in an exotic new place, like when I toured the, you know, Mayan ruins with John Jenkins, um, this entity that I hadn't, you know, that had to be awesome, by the way, mm-hmm. was that, that had to be awesome, by the way. Yeah, it was, I wrote about it and it was called, um, vision at Chichen Itza. Mm. And it's got pictures of me and John and the president of the Mayan study society, but some very paranormal things happened on that trip. But one of them was, um, before I had a vision at Chichen Itza, that was very dark, um, was just the intense presence of this interdimensional ally, because it was as if, being in a very novel place, he wanted to experience that with me. And so I wasn't expecting that or summoning him or anything, but he just appeared so vividly and was just very present during that whole trip. Hmm. Wow. Amazing. Well, Jonathan... I think we've come to about that time. I was going to ask yep. you about Leonardo da Vinci <laughs> and uh, talk a little bit about that as a um, as an inter- interdimensional relationship. Yeah, well, I, what I decided to do is I sort of, uh, was like a chaos magic ritual, I did a, a transtemporal phone call with Leonardo da Vinci. It's part of my rabbit hole playlist, rabbit hole navigation playlist on my YouTube channel. Yeah. And I just um, tried to explain to Leonardo just the basics that, you know, any layman, educated layman has learned from science. Because, you know, I figured that if anybody 
um, should be able to handle the rabbit hole of like what my, modern science has revealed in the last almost yes. 500 years since yes. his death. Yes. Um, it should be Leonardo should be. because nobody else reached both the pinnacle of art and science before or since. I agree. He was absolutely in biography, he one of my favorites. This. Yes, I agree. Um, but, but, but then Leonardo kind of freaked out by some aspects of it, mm. like exploding stars and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah. Even, even Leonardo um, had limitations in his ability to handle the rabbit hole of what we as modern educated people um, accept from science. Can you imagine, you know? Can you imagine what, what, it, what it would seem like? In, in, in either case, if we were able to go back to the time of Leonardo da Vinci and what it might actually be like compared to what we read in history books, etc., um, and, and also the, uh, the reverse, what it would be like to, to, to know uh, and see what it's like now. Amazing. You know, so, John, what about for people who actually have these experiences? I think this is great because um, there may be people that are having you know, conversations with alternative selves, with uh, interdimensional allies. But is there an opposite side of it as well? I guess we should probably ask that really quickly. It can be dangerous, perhaps, if you Extremely get the wrong... Extremely dangerous. Yes. Yeah, so I this... mean, and there's a whole category on my website that, you know, you go, there's like a telescope navigator bar, and one of those categories is mind parasites. Mind par- We've done, you know, years ago, yeah. we did a show on that. Right. I think it was 10 or 12 years ago, but yes. Right. So, so the, they can be extremely dangerous, um, and there are all kinds of tricksters um, out there in the interdimensional realms or the lower astral or whatever you might, might believe that they might be sourced from. And um, so that's part of the whole point. I've, I've, when, yeah. when, in my recent stuff on interdimensional relationships, I've, I've emphasized the symbiotic aspect, but I have vast writings about yes. the dangers and um, how how dark that can be. People can read something called The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts, also on my website, that tells wow. the story of, of paranormal research Joe Fisher and how he was, you know, destroyed by mm. interdimensional entities what that a were title. quite evidential, but were dark. Well, and I guess that's why we've talked about all these skills and tools that you can use in order to, to minimize uh, the potential of that type of thing happening, you know? Right. I've just been very lucky that, like, my two main interdimensional um, friends have been quite reliable and benign for yes. the most part. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to read something here really quickly. I grabbed a slide from one of your uh, rabbit hole videos, and it's uh, a great synopsis of what we've talked about. And I think that if I would have read it two weeks ago, uh, I would not have understood very well what it meant. And if I read it tonight, I do. And I hope that the people that are listening can, uh, can feel the same way. It goes like this. Follow the path of numinous into rabbit holes, aware that you'll be surrounded by the carnival funhouse mirrors of your own psyche, tricksters, and other psyches. Using your moral grounding, reality testing, and true skepticism, your phenomenology perspective, imaginal portals, depth psychology, dynamic relation to paradoxes, and worthy allies, to stay oriented. <laughs> I love it, Jonathan. Well, I guess we covered all of that. Thing, so <laughs> I think good, we did. That was the, the, the rabbit hole nugget within the rabbit hole videos. Well, it is, uh, it's excellent, and it's a great synopsis of what we've talked about for the last two weeks, and I'm thrilled that we had the chance to do it. And we uh, we'll come up with another uh, reason to do it sometime here in the near future, okay? Well, we were about to enter a political 
such a political rabbit hole. I mean, we're in it already. Oh, my gosh. With the pandemic and the election and yeah. so forth. So yeah. I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, real-time events to comment on anytime you want me to. Dude, I feel like we're, like, circling a black hole. I mean, I feel like it is just a runaway train, dark, stormy night, all of those, those yeah, uh, metaphors. But it's it's fascinating too. I mean, if, if you're not unemployed and you know homeless or yes, something like that, I agree with that um, too. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm in a privileged position, but it's it's extremely fascinating to observe. I agree. I agree as well. Well, we'll watch it and uh, we'll talk about it down the road here. Okay. Okay. All right, John. Thanks again, and we'll talk Thank to you, you soon. All right. Take care. Wonderful. Uh, Jonathan Zapp on the web once again at Zapp Oracle. Z a p o r a c l e. ZappOracle dot com. You can always link up to Jonathan through my website at MikeHagan.com, through the archives. His, uh, his picture and uh, links to his website will be on the front page for another week or so. And also remember Jonathan Zapp at Hotmail.com if you're interested in a copy of the beta, at least, for his most recent and upcoming novel. I guess it's the only real novel that he's been working on for many, many years called Parallel Journeys. All right, everybody, Jonathan Zapp, one more time. All right, it is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM. And uh, we're going to close out of here with one from Skin Shape called In the End, appropriately. And we'll come back and talk with you next week. I'm not sure what we're going to do next week. I haven't been planning things out very far ahead, to be honest, because things are changing so quickly, and things are changing at the radio station all the time, and... Um, and to be honest, my motivation hasn't been uh, up to snuff uh, for quite a while. In fact, uh, the show last week with Jonathan uh, was one that sort of revitalized me a little bit. And this one tonight did as well. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate the time that he spends with us whenever he does. And uh, I'll uh, keep trying to do my best for you all in a really weird time. This year has been, I've had some strange years, but this one has been about about tops. And um it can be taxing and, and hard, frustrating and uh, debilitating even at times. So uh, keep that in mind, everyone. I know it happens uh, to others if it happens to me. And a lot of things that Jonathan and I talked about over the last couple of weeks can be helpful with some of this stuff, I think. So at any rate, time to say adios. This one is called In the End. It's Skin Shape. Once again, thank you to Jonathan Zapp. Thanks for the music uh, to uh, uh, William Dory. And thanks to you all for listening. Come on back next week. In the meantime, you know, be cool to yourself and to other people. Okay? All right. It's Mike, and I'll catch you all later.
Thank you.